going to look at a moment in David's life in which David found himself, we could put it this way, between a rock and a hard place. He was, uh, to put it plainly, in the midst of his own crisis. There was, uh, there was this moment in time where everything just kind of collided in on him and it looked like everything was about to implode in his life. And it kind of reminded me of this obscure reference in Amos 5.19. I put this on the top of your handout because I think it captures what this might feel like sometimes. And it says, In that day you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against the wall in his house and he's bitten by a snake. I mean, talk about misfortune, right? And this, in some ways, could even be kind of funny when it's not happening to us. It's like the man escapes a lion, in itself a feat. What an unbelievable story this will be for the rest of his life. I escaped the lion only to run into a more ferocious animal, a bear. I escaped the bear, made it home safely, Leaned up against the wall, bitten by a snake. It's this idea that when storms come, sometimes it's like no matter how hard we run, they will collide on us. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a place in life where it just feels that way. It's like no matter what turn I make, things just don't turn out well for me. Well, that's exactly where David found himself. Because David was actually going home with his militia, about 600 men, making his way back to his home, a home that he created in a town called Ziklag. And he was coming home from a successful military campaign. We know that David utilized his men to protect the property of um, men from his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. Or he would also, what he would also do is launch into campaigns against the enemies of Israel. And upon the return of one of those successful campaigns, he finds himself in the middle of a whirlwind of crisis. There's no other way to say it. And so we'll just go ahead and look at this. And we're told in, in verse 1 of Samuel 30, that we're told that three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. And they had crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. And when David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. It's a moment they were not looking forward to. They were not foreseeing in their lives. It's a moment of complete devastation. It would be this moment in which, if you could just imagine, arriving home and his family, his friends, his loved ones, the friends and families of his men are gone. Nowhere in sight. And all that is left is the smell of the burned supplies and homes, the straw and the hay and the wood and the metal and any other items that may have been left behind. And all they see is the ashes and the rubble rising from the ground. You could see the smoke simmering. This had just happened to them. And this 
crisis just overwhelmed them. Grown men, grown men find themselves in complete agony. Warriors by trade, each one of them, we're told, are thrust into a situation where all they can do is weep. Why? Because their entire sense of wholeness has just cratered beneath their feet. Another virgin says they, they wept tears until they ran out of tears to weep. You can see it. David and his men, overcome by this complete disaster and utter destruction right in front of them. And if that in itself wasn't enough, this actually becomes, if you could believe it, even worse for David. Because we're told in verse 6 that David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters. And they began to talk of stoning him. They began to talk of stoning him. They, they, in their agony and in their pain and in their loss, they start moving towards a place of complete darkness. And we don't know how long this may have occurred. We don't know if it was a number of hours throughout the early afternoon into the evening. What we know is that in their pain, in their agony, they start to become bitter and they start to move in a direction actually that is not too far from what we would say is just common human nature. Because they start to move to a place of desiring in this injustice some degree of justice. And you could hear it. You could sense it. They, they want somebody to be responsible. Which is not too far from what we desire when things happen that are not right. We naturally start, our, our emotions start moving us towards the place of finding out who is to blame. Perhaps we can't fix it, but certainly we can blame who's responsible. And you can almost hear the conversation. They, they, are, they are devastated. And in their devastation and in their pain, you could hear maybe a couple of them starting to interact. You know, you know, it was David's idea to go on that campaign in the first place, wasn't it? It, it was. It was his idea to take all 600 of us, wasn't it? It was his idea. This was his mission, not ours. We would not have gone if he had not initiated it. And if we had not gone, when the Amalekites came, we would have been home. And we could have protected our family and our loved ones, our most prized possessions. This cannot stand. You could almost hear it can't fix this, but he will pay. And they, they start, how will we do? They start, they start to implement an ancient practice. We will stone him. We will execute him. Which it is difficult to underestimate or over-exaggerate what an extreme, tenuous place of danger David found himself in. Because David, listen, and this is what we have to recognize, the gravity of the situation in order to understand and appreciate the remarkable way David responded. 
Because David is also grieving. David is also in agony. David is also recognizing his family has been taken from him. But now David finds himself not in a place of of solidarity with his men, but in a place completely isolated. He is the one who is marked. And in his isolation, and now all 600 men ready to overtake him, the way David responds is nothing short of remarkable. If we could put it this way, this, this could have become the final chapter, the final days of David's life. There's no question about that. And yet it became one of the most stunning turnarounds that became another point of the legend of who this man is. Because look at how he, while everyone else allows, if you think of it this way, the crisis around them to become a crisis within them. David responds differently. You can see it. You can see it in the second half of verse 6. What does he do? We're told that, but David found strength in the Lord his God. Another version says that David encouraged himself in God. He somehow tapped into a deeper reserve than the situation he found himself in. Somehow, David, as painful and agonizing as the situation was, did not allow that to rupture his capacity to turn to God and receive strength. And that, this decision, this moment, actually becomes the turning point for the tide to completely change. In this event, what could have become the final sentence on his life becomes the launching point into something that is, you'll see it. It is, it is, (laughs) it is unreal in what happens. It is difficult to believe if it were not so. He turns encourages himself in God. Verse 7, we're told, Then he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring me the ephod, which is a garment of prayer and worship. And we're told, So Abiathar brought it, and David asked the Lord, he asked the priest, Should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them, God? I, I mean, will you answer me in this hour of my need? And the Lord told him, answered him, actually responded. We don't know how, we just know there was a sense. Yes, go after them, he said. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. Go, don't stay here in this mess. Move, move, get back on your feet and go. And, he, and so David and his 600 men set out and they came to the brook of Besor, but 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the brook. And so David continued the pursuit with 400 men, 200 of them exhausted from what? The three-day march from their campaign and also the probably the emotional drain, this devastating event took a toll on them. We can't go with you. That's fine. You stay here. 400 more. They go on. Along the way. Along the way. It's another way the scriptures say they didn't really know where they were going. It's a way of saying they were just making their way. Along the way, they found an Egyptian man in a field and brought him to David. They, being his 400 men, gave him some bread to eat and some water to drink. And they also gave him part of a fig cake and two clusters of raisins. They fed him. He didn't have anything to eat or drink for three days and nights. Before long, his strength returned. He was weak. He was somewhat emaciated. He looked frail. They fed him and they gave him water. And as his strength starts to return, David leads in, hoping what everyone else is hoping Perhaps 
you could help us. Verse 13 says, To whom do you belong and where do you come from? David asked. I am an Egyptian. And he says words that must have uh, lifted everybody. The slave of an Amalekite. The raiders who came. My master abandoned me three days ago because I was sick. We were on our way back from raiding the Carthites in the Negev, the territory of Judah, the Cal- and the land of Caleb. We had just burned Ziklag. And they left me. And here's the deal. He doesn't know who he's talking to, this man. He has no idea that he's actually giving the richest resource of intelligence to the very people who were just raided. Everyone could sense it. The obvious question, will you lead me to this band of raiders, David asked. The young man replied, if you take an oath in God's name that you will not kill me or give me back to my master, then I will guide you to them. If I betray them, don't, don't end my life. No worries. Done. Easy price to pay. Verse 16. So he led David to them, and they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amount of plunder they had taken from the Philistines and the land of Judah. They were in the midst of their own festival. And here is where we now step into ancient history. Here's where we now start to step into and recognize the fact that we are speaking of a different time where things were dealt with differently, far more violently. And the scriptures don't hide it. Just says it. The narrator just says it. These are terms that would otherwise shock us. We're told what happens. David and his men rushed in among them, slaughtered them throughout that night and the entire next day until the evening. And none of the Amalekites escaped except for 400 young men who fled on camels. And David, and this is where, if you could see the highlight, David got back everything the Amalekites had taken. And he rescued his two wives. Different time. (laughs) But then almost as if to emphasize the extraordinary nature of what has just occurred. The narrator says nothing was missing. Small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. And then, almost as an exclamation, it's like, let's just clarify. Let's just make this absolutely clear. David brought everything back. David brought everything back. This account is uh, stunning in its scope. In a matter of days, David and his men went from the lowest point in their lives to the highest point of, of joy. From losing their loved ones and the ones they had treasured to regaining, not losing a single person. It's, it's stunning. It's, it's inspiring. It's It causes us to feel something of an awe. It does force us to somewhat suspend disbelief. Why? Because we know that life doesn't happen this way a lot of the times. 
And so we would be mistaken if we were to say, you know what? Okay, if this is the case, if this is how this worked with David, well then, when we interact with God and we feel unjust, like something unjust happens to us, worry not, everything will be restored. And that is actually not what is being said here. It is not a promise in which God is able to, he promises to say, in this life, no wrong will be gone without being corrected in this life. That is not his promise. His promise, which is what this is saying, is that there is no crisis that God is not able to step into, walk us through, and lead us out of. That, that, that is actually what this is saying. There is no moment in our lives where we might find ourselves in a situation that God is not able to step into, meet us right where we're at, walk us through, and walk us out of. And that may sometimes actually mean the restoration of certain things back to a lot closer to what it were. Other times it may mean a different path, a different life, a different way, a trajectory, a now change. It is at the same time incredibly life-giving. That is what the author is seeking to communicate. And yet there are, there are things David did here and we are able to explore for our own situations, our own points in life when we might need to figure out how to respond when crisis, if you could hear it this way, hits home. I just want to put these on the board and unpack them, walk them out and spend our time with them a little bit. I want to say that firstly, what does this show us? It shows us that we are to acknowledge the crisis and process the pain. That we are to acknowledge the crisis and process the pain. That, that is actually what David did. Now, here's the deal. We have to be honest and truthful about this. To be in the middle of a situation that we would be able to call, that was a, that was a, a, a situation that we would say it was apocalyptic in nature. Right? Everyone taken, everything destroyed, everything burned. We would have to be in our, we would not be able to be in our right mind and deny what has happened. There's no way. There's no way David and his men could deny what has happened. But that is actually, although we may sometimes, and we pray never to find ourselves in such situations, sometimes they may have mostly what happens in our lives are situations that are actually very much deniable. Moments of crisis that we can easily deny, cover up, and hide. Those are far more common. And yet, what does David show us? What do they show? That we, the first step is to acknowledge it and process the pain out. We are to acknowledge and process. And this is, this is, this is, the, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. You know why? Because much of the time that a crisis happens, if, even if it's small and we think it's significant or it's rather large, what happens is naturally we, we are so uncomfortable with sitting in pain that we automatically jump to other points. And you know what we jump to normally? We jump to anger. We can jump to bitterness. We can jump to justification. What, what, what psychologists call secondary emotions that hide what is actually going on. Because why? We so distaste, we so dislike the taste of rejection, perhaps injustice, something that is not right. We don't like the taste of loneliness. 
We do not like to sit in these moments. And yet, if you could hear this, a moment like this, if it is not acknowledged, well, we, it is difficult to move on from what we do not acknowledge has ever existed. It is extraordinarily hard for us to move forward from that which we deny is even there. It's not possible, actually. Somebody told me, described it this way, that grief grows toxic in us when it does not digest. When we do not know how to digest grief, it actually continues to linger. It doesn't go away, which is what we all desire. When we do not acknowledge certain pains in our lives, it doesn't just disappear, which is sincerely our hope. And what happens is actually it becomes toxic, unhelpful, unhealthy. And this, is, this means that if something is not acknowledged, it, it continues to grow and increase in its pain and its severity. Have you ever heard the saying, death by a thousand paper cuts? It's this image. One paper cut, man, it kind of hurts. I mean, maybe I'm weak, but it does. <laughs> but it's also, you could ignore it. You could get away with it. You get another paper cut, okay, now it's a little bothersome. Imagine having hundreds of paper cuts. What are paper cuts? Small offenses. Small cuts. Small things that we might think, man, that's so insignificant. It shouldn't really bother me, but it does. It shouldn't really cut me, but it does. And I'm, I don't really want to admit that it did, but it did. And what happens over time, if we do not address these tiny infractions in our lives, these tiny points where we feel slighted, hurt, rejected, we feel somewhat in pain, if we do not acknowledge, you know what happens? That's where the saying comes in. A thousand of these cuts, it, it will so fill us with pain. That is when things just blow up. And it may not even, the response is so outside of what has occurred. Because it's no longer about what is just occurring right then and there. It is about that in addition to everything else that has gone unaddressed. Some of us, the issue is learning how to address what is happening in our lives. To be real about it. To be honest about it. To be courageous enough to acknowledge it. Others of us, it may not actually be that. Others of us, our problem isn't stuffing things down. Our problem, we have no problem acknowledging our pain. We just want everyone else to suffer with us. And so if I'm in pain, yeah, I'll acknowledge it. But you must also be in pain. <laughs> and you better not smile around me. No joy. That is unkind. Right? So we tend to project our pain onto every sphere of our lives. You know what this says? It says that God, something of the Lord, longs to teach us to do what? To learn how to grieve in a healthy manner. To learn how to walk through pain in a healthy manner. To learn how to acknowledge, not to hide, not to pretend, not to put a mask on things. But to be able to do it in a way that, what? That is sorrowful, yes, but not in despair. Pain-filled, yes. Honest, yes, but not without And this is, this is actually a turning point in a way of life. This is a dividing line 
that Christ longs to walk us through. God longs to teach us how to, how to walk this out. Tim Keller, who's a respected author and minister, actually said, put it this way. He said, he, he, and I asked him to put this quote out there, most people sit in today's joys for seeing the coming sorrows, avoiding them and masking them. Christians sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. And we are able, and this is so important, we are able to honestly assess what is happening in our lives because we are at the same time given a promise that this, what has happened to us, is not the final note on our lives. It is not the final note on this world. And Jesus gives us a promise. There is a place in life, in the life after this one, where all wrongs will be made right, where all injustice will be brought right into justice, where everything that is broken will be made whole, where all pain will be relieved. Where everything that we know is not in its way, in its place, it will be restored. And in a way, perhaps not in this life, Jesus promises beyond complete restoration. Promises a life we can only taste today. That is the promise. And in a culture that avoids weakness or any appearance of it, in a place where anything that looks like weakness is actually seen as a negative, God gives us a strength to not hide, to not mask, to not pretend, but to be honest about our weaknesses, to be honest about what's happening. Because we are able to see that this is not the final note. Now, here's the difference. This is what David was able to do. This is what the men of David were not able to do. What happened with them? They grieved. They certainly did. But that grief was the final note on their lives. It, they were, this is it. It's all over. And so let's just, let's just be done with it. Get rid of this man. David, on the other hand, did what? He was able to prove something far different, which is our second point here. That we, what we discover is that a pattern of turning to God, it makes us resilient. A pattern of turning to God makes us resilient. David encouraged himself in the Lord. And this is, this is not the first time. We have to understand this. Though this is the only time, the first time this is used to describe David's way of life, it was not the first time he encouraged himself in the Lord. There's no way. There's no way. He had developed a pattern of life that when he most needed it, it showed up. It showed up. And it reminded me of this moment in my life, in my earlier years when I was a teen, that I ended up becoming involved with uh, martial arts. And there were several different disciplines that I was able to, to become involved in. I remember training in them. And, you know, over some time, over a number of years, I remember training about three to four days a week in them. And we would, we would always train certain moves. And it was the same move. And, it, and we could just easily get bo bored with it. It's like the same move, same move, same kick, same kick, right? Get a little bit better, but same kick, same punches, same roll. We also started training how to fall. And we'd fall to the left, we'd fall to the right. And, we, and no one was tripping us. There was no imminent danger. We didn't find ourselves in an altercation. We weren't, weren't in an all competition. We were training when everything was going well. We were training when everything was safe, when no pressure was on us. 
We were training. We were training. We were training. And then I remember there would be a season, you know, sometimes where I'd go out with my friends, perhaps over the holidays, we'd go ice skating. I'm not that good at ice skating. And so I remember there would be these risky moments. I'd go out into the ice, and I would inevitably fall. But in the past, when I would fall, it would hurt. For whatever reason, this time I would fall, and my, like, my body just responded and just landed. On all, I just landed. And everyone just stopped and stared at me. And I stopped and stared at myself. I just, that was pretty cool. Got back up. Why? My body had been trained to respond. It is the same way with you and I. It is not only in crisis that we are to turn to God. But we are to train ourselves. Because we may be in a good season. And if that's the case, may we enjoy it. But life, we know. We only need to live long enough to know. It will plateau, and there will be moments. It will dip. Things will happen. And it is there that the pattern of our life will show up. It will. And so how do we do this? How do we train ourselves to encourage ourselves in God, to become resilient, to rise up a little bit more quickly? I just want to suggest a couple things that have helped me throughout the years. Firstly, I want to suggest that music is actually far more powerful than we may realize. That music connected with lyrics are able to express the condition of our soul in a way nothing else can. It is able to connect to the deepest parts of who we are. It is why music is so widely celebrated. No matter what culture we find ourselves in throughout the entire world, it has something to it. It resonates with us. Now, I'm going to suggest that it's not just music, any type of music, but music that speaks of the goodness and faithfulness of God. It's music that calls us to remember that God is in the midst of what we are walking through. We are not alone in it. And it might be. You know why? Because I have found myself many times in situations where, if you could hear it this way, the atmosphere in my soul is dark and stormy. And what I need is something to shine some light on it. And so I may, it may be alone in my earbuds finding music that is God-centered, that is Christ-centered, and that is good and easy to listen to actually ends up changing the atmosphere of my heart. And sometimes there are seasons where we have a song. This is my song. This is it. She's going to repeat that song. She's going to listen to it over and over. I'm going to walk it out. Ah, yeah. It's not, it's not just about what I see around me. It's not just about what's happening to me. God, you're doing something. You're in the midst. Would your music invade my soul? Will it invade my soul? First, it's, yeah, that, to build a life, a pattern of becoming more accustomed and familiar with music that speaks of him, that is a very good habit to develop. Secondly, I would say there's, there's an entire section of the scriptures that is so ideal for moments of crisis. It's the book of Psalms. Some, why? Because that is where people are real, like honest. You don't hide anything. They don't pretend. And it's so refreshing because it connects to us. And I asked them to put just a couple verses up of Psalm 140, 143 up. And I asked them to put this up there. But if you could hear this, I am losing all hope. I am paralyzed with fear. And I remember the days of old. I ponder all your great works and think about what you have done. I lift my hands to you in prayer. I thirst for you as parched land thirsts for rain. 
And so I ask, come quickly, Lord, and answer me, for my depression deepens. There's no hiding. Here I am. Don't turn away from me or I will die. Let me hear of your unfailing love each morning for I am trusting in you. Show me where to walk for I give myself to you. You know what this psalm does? It does what most psalms do. It starts off with where we are at. I am afraid, paralyzed with it. I remember you, God. I remember you're in the midst of my situation. And so even if it's small, if it's like a mustard seed, Jesus said, that faith is powerful. So I trust in you. I trust in you. If we do that, we will discover what encouragement in God looks like. We will discover it for ourselves. That is what David had learned to do. And when he did, it was then that he acted. It was then that he was able to move. And this is our last final thought. It's that faith-filled steps is what will open up a path for us. Faith-filled steps will open up a path for us. You know what the difference is? Not fear-filled. Not anxious-filled. Not not denial-filled. Not angry-filled. Faith-filled. Out of a place of trusting in God. When we are able to turn to Him and encourage ourselves in Him, you know what happens is our mindset starts to change. We start to see there is perhaps a way forward. Where were they going? They had no idea. But they took one step at a time. One step at a time. One step at a time. And before you know it, they found themselves in the midst of restoration. Which is the exact thing Jesus comes to you and I, to you and me, offering. You know who he came for? He came, actually. He came for a select group of people. He said, I come for those who need a doctor. I come for those who need to see. I come for those who need to be strengthened. I come for those. If that is you, God has sent you a remarkable gift. Follow me, and I'll show you the way. And what happens is the intersection of people who declare their need intersect with Jesus and what opens up is in a path that is so life-giving it's remarkable it has been shifting people's lives 2,000 years ago to today and if we were to take one step at a time we may not know exactly where this is headed we may not know exactly what this is going to look like but we take one courageous step at a time one step at a time one faith I'm trusting in you God I'm going to take one step You're going to teach me what to do again. You're going to lead me each step of the way. Initiative is recaptured. Sense of control is recaptured. Paralytic fear is done away with. And we start to discover, listen, God doesn't just provide a path for us in our crisis. He provides a path for us through every season of our lives. That is what we discover. That is what David modeled. That... I pray, is what we seek to step into. An opportunity to discover once again His grace for us, His love for us, His capacity to meet us right where we're at and lead us, open up a way for us. May He do that. May He do that in our lives. 
May he show us the way. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving. And the band's going to come up, share in a closing song, meant to highlight that in times when we find ourselves in crisis, it is there we get to rediscover his grace and love for us, his capacity to breathe new life out of our brokenness. That is the beautiful gift he offers you and me. May it be so. Why don't we pray, share in these moments together, move forward. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, that um, you are able to meet us, whether we're in the high of the mountain, in the plateau, or in the valley. We thank you, God, that you, you long for us to be near to you, you draw near to us far more than we could recognize. Help us. Help us be courageous enough to admit our need, to acknowledge the pain, walk it out, to turn towards you, and help us discover the path you have for us. May you give us the courage to take one step at a time. And may your restoring love start to dominate our lives. We ask for that, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.